Welcome. I'm Laura Lee Binstock, and you are listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. Many of us grew up with the golden rule, treat others as you would like to be treated. It seems like a nice mantra to teach to your children, but one woman is turning that mantra on its head. Joining me today is Emily Golden, executive leadership and career coach and author of The New Golden Rule, The Professional Perfectionist Guide. Emily, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Laura Lee. Absolutely. I was very intrigued with, I think that's really cool that your last name is Golden and it just all worked so well together. But tell me about the book, The New Golden Rule. Absolutely. So as you said, the the golden rule to treat others the way that you want to be treated is what we've all grown up on. And it sounds like a great mantra to live by. What I found in my work when I really pulled back the the layers is that the problem with the golden rule is that it guides us to be motivated by what we get back from someone else. Mm -hmm. There's a what's in it for me quality here. And it, um, it really sets us up for disappointment. It can be a trap. It can breed these survival instincts and righteousness. Um, And you might find yourself thinking, how come that person is treating me that way? Or like, I would never treat someone that way. Right. Right. Um, And ultimately, anytime we expect someone else to make us feel good or valued, we're handing off our power. Right. So I say you need to be your own champion. So the old golden rule simply doesn't leave space for that. Um, it, it really has us handing off our power. And so I, in my work, have come up with the new golden rule. And of course, no accident that my last name is golden. It was just a nice play. Right. Um, the, new golden, the new golden rule is to treat yourself the way you want others to treat you. Because what I found in my work working with high performers, people who have had a successful track record, is that nine and a half times out of 10, these people are not very nice to themselves. They're not talking kindly to themselves. They're not setting themselves up to have the support structures that will have them really feel fulfilled. They don't have um, their life set up to truly have their needs be met. And that is what the book is based on. And of course, you know, I'm looking right back at the people that I work with when I look in the mirror. So it tends to be me. um, And I lived most of my life this way, handing off my power and um, really looking to others for validation. Um, And it just left me exhausted overwhelmed, burnt out, and I hit a wall. And so applying the new golden rule has truly transformed every aspect of my life. And I just, I wrote the book because I can only work with so many people, but the book, I can get it into everyone's hands. Yes, absolutely. You know, as an adult, I completely understand like the the whole idea to treat yourself the way you want to be treated. You know, on my website, there's this, there's a quote that I love. um, How you love yourself is how you teach others to love you. And I was like, that is absolutely, that's so true. And 
it was it was like when I first read it, it was like the first time I ever thought about that. When did you realize that the the new golden rule was or the golden rule, the old golden rule was completely backwards? So first off, the relationship that you have with yourself that I have with myself informs the relationships that I have with everyone else, that you have with everyone else. It is that relationship that is fundamental. People perceive you the way you perceive yourself. And I always knew this, right? I knew this on some level. But in, in 2010, when my oldest was diagnosed with Tourette syndrome, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And here's why. I was climbing the corporate ladder. I was working in human resources. I was um, high potential and, you know, I, I was getting all the accolades on the outside, but inside I, I really didn't like what I was doing. I'm not going to say I hated it. There were aspects of it. I liked, but by and large, I didn't really like my job, but I was getting paid nicely and I had a bright future and I had this home life, husband. I love house. I love two beautiful, wonderful children. And then out of the blue, seemingly, not really, but it seemed to me, I didn't know that, that there were signs. Out of the blue at five, my daughter's diagnosed with a complex neurological condition with no cure, no idea where it came from. And everything I Googled, because of course I turned to Dr. Google, because that's what you <laughs> do, was like one depressing article after another. And I spiraled because I'm going to work every day and I'm like, well, I'm doing this so that I can make money for my family, which is my heart. And I would go home and it's not just I'm worried about what's gonna happen with her as she gets older, but I'm literally watching her tick. I'm watching her body move in these different ways. And she was like unfazed by it, but um, I knew that the chances of the ticks getting worse as she got older with this diagnosis was, were high. My anxiety was off the charts and um, I couldn't find a, I couldn't find a comfortable place for myself. And I, I said to my husband, like, I don't know, how, I don't know how I, how I'm going to be able to do this. Like, how am I going to be able to keep up this exhausting experience where I'm going from one exhausting environment to another and the answer was, I have to find work that fills my heart. I have to. Um, and, you know, fast forward, I went through a lot of healing um, therapy. I was always, I had always been in therapy myself. I had um, experienced learning differences. I have a physical condition myself, which put me in therapy from a young age. So I was no stranger to therapy, but I, it just, it wasn't like it, it helped, but it, it helped like incrementally. Um, but I, I knew I had to find a new career path and it took a while for my husband and I to be in a position where I could really explore that. Um, and it wasn't until 2015 that I found coaching. Um, and what I loved about coaching was that it gave me the opportunity to do the thing I loved in human resources, which was to work with people. Um, I could see people's superpowers, the best in people. Um, I could help them to develop um, but I wasn't kind of stuck in this corporate paradigm or this, you know, this, this environment. And it wasn't like an easy transition where I go from a really nice six figure salary where I'm super comfortable to running my own business, you know, seamlessly, there were a lot of bumps in the road, but that's the thing that had me, that was the pivotal moment. And from there, 
um, I realized that so much of, it was my daughter's diagnosis that woke me up. But when I started doing the work and peeling back the layers, the, the real work was in starting to like myself. And then once I started to like myself, I actually started to love myself. And um, that is an active practice. Yeah. Um, and it has transformed, as I was saying to you before we hit record, it's transformed the way I relate to my children and the way that my children relate to themselves. It, it's, it's just, it's incredible. Wow, that is, that is a really powerful story. Um, I think that that's so amazing that you were able to do that. And, and I, I, I feel like that's, that's just, that's a really brave thing. And now you're doing what you love, you know, you talk about, you know, kind of peeling the onion and like learning how to love yourself. Like, how did you, how did you do that? How should we be treating ourselves? Um, so how it started for me after, um, after my daughter was diagnosed and, um, I was so, I was just trying to control and manage the heck out of my environment because that's what we do when we're scared. Right. Mm -hmm. So try to control as much as possible. So, um, the first part of my healing journey was actually was finding yoga. And I, a lot of people talk about this, right. But I did, I did the 90 minute hot yoga and I did that for a while. And really what it gave me, in addition to extra mobility or additional mobility in my body, but it gave me space to just be with me, to tolerate myself. And when I, when I look back, that was a super important part because once I was able to tolerate myself for 90 minutes alone with myself, um, I had more room to accept myself. And then I got into the coaching work. Um, and then I started to understand that there are these two parts of myself, of me. And I talk about this in the book, right? I talk about there's the, um, I call it the golden self, which is the highest and best self, the essence of who we are. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's who we, it's, 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 it's our being. It's what shows up when we do, when we come into a room. It's what's missing when, when you leave the room, when I leave the room. It's what's felt. It's that energy. And then there's this other part, this survival self, these survival instincts, these mechanisms that we create, and they're created early on in our life, and they protect us, and they're not all bad, and the goal isn't to, you know, whack-a-mole it and make it go away. The goal is to recognize that we always get a choice as to where we come from, and so having the tools and distinctions. So those are just two of the powerful tools and distinctions that I learned through my coaching journey. Um, but that became part of my, of my healing. Um, getting myself radically supported to the point that it felt indulgent. And I am talking like over the top. This is so I'm someone who used to judge the heck out of myself. And I still do on my, on my days when that survival self is, is, is loud. Right. So I would, I, I had, you know, my coach who I saw weekly, a therapist who, you know, every other week I was seeing sometimes every week, you know, um, I would, I would go to yoga, do my meditation. My husband knew, like I, I, I enrolled my husband, by the way, in all of this. Cause I was like, if, if, if I'm going to show up for this family in the way that I need to, and I'm going to show up in this business that I want to build, I, like 
a third of it is my own wholeness. If I am not taking care of me, I am not going to be able to show up for the people that I'm working with. Um, so getting myself radically supported. So I would say that um, those are those are those are things, um, you know, and then as far as just continuously um, practicing self-love and, and, and self-like and caring about caring for self is noticing what's good and right, practicing being present, um, recognizing when we're in a loop of going for the next feel good, like got to check that thing off the check, the, the list, right. right? It feels good. It's not all bad, but if we're constantly living for what's next, we're missing exactly where we are. Right. Wow. Yes. That is, I, you know, I, I used to talk about yoga all the time. Like I could, I took yoga as I can, you know, stretching mobility, but that's a good time for me to think about what, what is on my list for the day. And I was never present Mm -hmm. and it didn't, it, it really took until I went into treatment for, for trauma where I was, I was like, oh, wow, being present is actually really important. Um, that, I think, living in the moment is, is a really difficult thing a lot of people struggle with. It's definitely something that I, I did, I struggled with. But I, I love what you were saying about the parts. So I know I, I, I was talking to you about um, MDMA, psychedelic assisted therapy. Before I, w- before I was able to actually do the drug assisted therapy, I had to work on parts work, basically, like, I guess it's called internal family systems therapy, where it's all the different parts and you had to get to know every single part. And that was life-changing because actually when the, when during the study or during the therapy, those parts started coming out, I needed to reacquaint myself with them. Like, and, and so they, they were like, you know, we need to talk about, you know, these different parts of you because when they come out during the session, you don't want, you, you don't want to be scared off. You want to just start saying, Hey, I remember you. I know you. And this is, this is how I benefit from you. So like you were saying, like, you don't want to whack it away. Like the anxiety part of me, like yeah. it's just trying to warn me and, and help my best self. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's incredible that you're saying all these things because that was all new to me. And I feel like it's new to so many other people. And that's why your book is, is, is perfect just for just that one section. And, and obviously there's so many more parts of your book that um, is, is so helpful. And I feel like is not really talked about. And I, and yeah, I thank you. I, I really feel like yeah, I, I think so along benefit. the lines of the, the the parts, you know, it's so often that I'll be working with someone and they're they're trying to kind of they're enrolling me and like I am this way, I am this kind of person, I um I I I'm good at this, I'm bad at this, I'm it's like we are made up of 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 all of these stories and all of you know of these different parts of ourselves and we can relate to ourselves as um, one way and we're doing ourselves a disservice like there's actually beauty in recognizing the range and again it's not bad or wrong it's just recognizing and having that awareness is is life-changing is pivotal right um 
you know, you talk about as a coach, you discuss closing the gap between where you are and where you want to be. How? So my book is a, a three-step process. So the, and I, I tried to make this as easy to digest as possible. So the, the three steps are what I call the archeological dig. And that is to get at the golden self and the survival self to understand. Mm-hmm. The second part is the vision. Where do you want to be? Where are you going? What is the intended future? And we create that future from your golden self, from the future. So it would be like a year from now, February 9th, 2022, when we get rooted in Lori Lee, who are you on that date in the specific area we're working on? And I work with most people around career and professional. Um, what is life like? What are you, what, what is your, what's your business? What does your business look like? What, what's the, what's the income that your business is generating? Um, and we're really like, we're standing in the future and we're creating that vision together. Um, and so this is what I take you through in the book, how to actually create that vision and to step into it powerfully from the highest and best you, as opposed to what most of us do most of the time, which is we set goals from this survival self and they're very fixy, right? I'm going to lose 10 pounds and then I'm going to fit into those jeans and I'm going to feel really good, right? But they don't, that, that doesn't <laughs> fit. Like the, the, the fixy way of operating is how I was living my life. Once I get there into the next job, then I'll finally feel better. Then I'll be able to relax and not be so stressed because I'll have arrived. But that day never came. Mm-hmm. So it's about that, you know, the second step is that vision. And then the third step is, um, is following the roadmap essentially to get to that vision. And that's where we pull in lots of coaching tools and I talk about the importance of well-being and how we're talking to ourselves, and the and 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 confidence. And one of the things um, that I that I I say loud and clear in the book, in a few different places, is we have it all wrong about confidence in this culture. Confidence comes from taking action, failing, and getting back up. And taking action again and failing and getting back up. Confidence is not something that you wait for and then take action. You know, people come to me all the time and they're like, when I have that confidence, then I'm going to ask for that raise or go for that job or, you know, do that thing. It's like, no, 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 you're going to do it. We're going to support you to do it. And you're going to fall and you're going to get down and then you're going to get back up. Just like when you were a kid That's how you learned and your life expanded. When we get to be adults, we're like, our life (laughs) starts to shrink because we get so scared of failing and falling. But if we're not trying new things, we're not growing. So the third step of the process is following that roadmap and, you know, really how to set yourself up because well-being is the foundation of all of it. Yes. And it's funny when you say like how, and then you talked about this a couple of times before and how we talk to ourselves. We're, we're so judgy with ourselves. And, and it's funny because even when I, when I talk to my friends and they're saying like, oh, I, I suck at this or I'm doing this wrong. And I'm like, 
why are you talking to yourself like that? You would never talk to anyone else like that. And it's funny because I talk to myself that way. And I, I, I really, even though I'm telling my friends that I still am trying to learn how to talk very gently to myself. Um, so yeah, I, I think that that's something that is extremely important that I've, I really found in your book is just it's, it's, it's an ongoing theme, it seems like. It's just trying to treat yourself the way you should be treated. And, and I, I, I love it for anyone that's listening that has children. It's like, think about how you, you would talk kindly to your child. Like you would never talk to your child. If, and now look, and there are times that we're irritated and frustrated and annoyed with our kids, right? Go work yourself out and highest and best. Like, how would you talk to your child? And your, your children are modeling that. Like I, the other day, my husband and I were working on a project together and he was, he was being mean to my man. And I was like, he was being mean to himself. I'm like, stop being mean to my man. Why are you being mean to you? And he's like, I don't know. I just, you know, it's, it's so automatic. And um, we get to actually have it go differently by being intentional. Yeah. You know, in your book, you also talk about tangible ways to, I guess, become your best self, um, which begins with identifying and separating, you know, your survival instinct and, and, and harmful tendencies, which we, we were just talking to, um, talking about. Could you go into more of a, more detail in that? To be clear, there's, there's parts work in the therapeutic sense. Um, and I, am familiar with parts work. This is more like Emily's interpretation of an over, perhaps according to a therapist, it might be considered overly simplistic, oversimplified. Um, and for the coaching that I'm doing, it really does work because it's this, again, this highest and best self and then the survival part of you, the survival mode, the survival instincts. The survival instincts um, can look like, so for me, one of my survival selves is a perfectionist. Mm. He loves to, um, it's not about actually having me look perfect, um, though I'm, I might occur that way on the outside. It's all about me trying to control what other people think of me and mm. how other people might perceive me. Because then I can protect myself from judgment. Now, this is all rooted actually in judgments I already have of myself. I'm so judgmental of myself that I'm just projecting that other people are going to be judgmental of me too. So I'm trying to perfect whatever it is that I'm putting out there, how I'm communicating, um, so that you don't think that I suck the way I think I suck, or you don't think that I'm stupid the way I think I'm stupid. Right. So that's perfectionism. People are like, I'm not a perfectionist. My house is a mess and I'm not a perfectionist. And they tell you all the reasons. And it's really not about actually having to look perfect so much as to have to control or want to control how you see me. And it's because ultimately I don't like myself or I'm judging myself so harshly. And I don't want you to judge me too. Um, 
another survival self that is common to me, and it you kind of might get this because of the perfectionism, but it's to control and manage. So if I can, and this isn't about necessarily what you think of me, but life will be better if everything is in order and it's more, it's much more predictable. And mm-hmm. um, now the, de- the deal is, and if we didn't learn anything from COVID, go back to sleep, right? Um, <laughs> we never could control and we never will be able to control. Life is uncertain and unpredictable. That's how it goes. But for control enthusiasts like myself, we try to control as much as we can so that we can predict what's going to happen or we feel like we've got the prediction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, an, an example is, um, you know, being highly regimented with the way our day goes. And mm-hmm. for the control enthusiast, if the day gets thrown off, um, it's like, it's, it's really uncomfortable. Like there's no spontaneity. Um, it's again, it's not all bad, um, but it's not necessarily where you want to come from all the time. And there are, I mean, my clients have, we usually like to come up with three to five different survival selves um, because there are so many different forms that this can take. Um, you know, sometimes the survival self can be, um, can just shut shut people out. Like I, I actually was talking to a client earlier today who was um, her survival self just goes dark. She just goes dark. She just won't, she, you know, she goes quiet, no response. It's not who she is highest and best. It's just what she does when she gets scared and triggered. And so Mm. knowing that, I mean, especially for me as the coach is really useful because I can be like, knock, knock, (laughs) what's going on over there? Right? Like highest Mm -hmm. and best, talking to highest and best. Let's, you know, let's actually have a conversation. So um, we, we like to have fun with it and name these, these, um, these survival mechanisms, if you will, because um, that's really truly what they are. They're mechanisms for keeping you safe. It's like that reptilian brain. Exactly. And that's funny. Your first example is like, it was like completely me, right? Like my, my parents kind of raised me to think everyone is watching you. So you need to, you know, you need to act a certain way. You need to project yourself a certain way because everyone is watching you. And then I became, that's, that's how I kind of lived my life. Like everyone is watching me. Everyone is judging me. How can I be, how can I project my perfect self? That is exactly how I was living my life. And it was exhausting. So I am a trauma informed certified coach. And I went through this trauma coaching Um, in 2020, right after the pandemic hit. And the reason that I decided to go for this training um, was I had always had an interest in trauma. And I'll tell you about that in a moment. But as the pandemic was hitting and I realized this was going to bring up um, past trauma for a lot of people probably and cause new trauma, um, it felt like something important to have in my toolkit. Mm-hmm. And um, it's somewhat unusual for a coach to have trauma work in their toolkit, um, but trauma-informed coaching is becoming more popular. And this course that I took is ICF, International uh, Coaching Federation uh, accredited. 
Um, and so it follows the rigor of the ICF, um, which is who I'm certified through, um, and also talks about the importance of understanding how trauma impact, can impact individuals. So it's a really powerful experience. But for me personally, I have always had a knowing that I am a trauma survivor. And um, there's a number of different aspects of like, there's a number of different um, traumas that I've experienced, but I actually think it goes back to familial trauma that was passed down. My grandfather was a product of the depression. Um, he was 14 or 15 when he lost everything financially and mom and dad. And um, he was the youngest of, I think, seven siblings. And that was obviously incredibly um, challenging. He doesn't talk about it. He never talked about it really, but then he went off to war and there's trauma that I believe, and this is obviously an area that you're very familiar with, but that you know, trauma can be stored in the body and passed down. Um, and so um, it's, it, this is an area of work that it, I'm extremely interested in. And, and I believe that a lot of my own survival instincts and my, my, survival, um, my survival self is actually created based on family traumas that have been passed down. So mm -hmm. that's an interesting body of work that I probably will study at some point in the, in the future. Well, that's really interesting because I was actually just talking to somebody about how it would be really nice if there are a lot more trauma-informed people. Um, you know, I didn't realize they, they did, you know, trauma-informed certifications for coaching because, you know, I think that is a really great um, tool in your toolkit because in talking to people who have dealt with trauma, there, there are, there are chances that things can be triggering, especially when it comes to like business and perfectionism and, you know, trying to be all of the things. Right. Um, so I think that's incredible. And I, I think that that really have that has you stand out from all the other coaches. Right. Um, yeah, I was, I was born. So I, so I have this family trauma, but then I was born, um, with my head laying on my shoulder in a funny way. And I, my parents were actually really frightened of me at birth because they, the doctors didn't know what was wrong. They thought I had, um, they thought I had cerebral palsy or another diagnosis. It turns out that, um, that was actually a trauma and I, it's not something I'm caught. I'm like aware of. I now know, but from at, from in the, in the early days of being born, my parents were actually scared to pick me up. I have a connective tissue disorder. Um, and I'm missing six discs in my cervical spine. So oh my, my, my spine, my, my spine is actually deformed and you wouldn't ever know it by looking at me, right? It's an invisible disability. Um, but you know, my aunt once told me, and I talk about this in the book that I think I was six or nine months old. And she said, you know, you were, you were such a sweet baby, but we were all afraid to hold you because you looked like you were in pain all the time. Like that's trauma, right? Like yeah. that had to, my mom said it took her two days after she had me to really like hold me and fall in love with me because she was so scared. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And having babies, obviously I know, you know, that's, the importance of holding them that, immediately. Yeah. 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 
that is so interesting that that you equated all of that with the trauma like the familial trauma yeah um, there's there's some connection there's there's just there's like a i think that some of us are called to do certain work um and there's many different messages that we get to be you know to be in that work and you know there's the family trauma there's my own personal then of course the story i told you about my daughter right like this is the work i'm meant to do Absolutely. In your coaching sessions, you actually talk about emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about the importance of EQ? It is. So first off, what I want to say is that I love emotional intelligence because we can grow it. So we have to know it to grow it. So we have mm-hmm. to understand what it is and what it is that we're actually working on. Um, but I am fascinated by emotional intelligence, or I call it, you know, we, well, we also call it EQ, emotional quotient. Unlike IQ, which is fixed anywhere between the age of 18 to 22, 25, EQ is, studies show, is movable and growable. Um, I've heard up until about the age of 65. I would push on that, and I would say it could probably even be later. Mm-hmm. Um When I talk about emotional intelligence, I am talking specifically about, I've adopted specifically the work of um, Dr. Reuven Baran. Um, His his work um, came about a few decades before uh, Daniel Goleman, who many people know as the father of emotional intelligence, but Baran's work um, is, is, is what I use in my practice and I actually use a particular assessment. So when I start working with a client, we do a baseline assessment um, of the individual. And when I'm working in organizations, we'll do 360s. So we'll do an assessment of the individual and then we'll actually get um, an assessment of what the people that are in relationship to that individual, how they view that individual's emotional intelligence. So it gives us not just what is the person's emotional intelligence, but how do people perceive that person's emotional intelligence? Um, And there's often a gap there, which is a great place to coach. Um, So emotional intelligence, when I'm talking about it, is a set of emotional and social skills that collectively establish how well we perceive and express ourselves, how well we develop and maintain relationships, how well we cope with challenges, and how we use emotional information in effective and meaningful ways. Um, And the the particular assessment I use measures 15 different, we call them composites of Mm -hmm. emotional intelligence, um, which fall under the buckets of self-perception, self-expression, interpersonal decision-making and stress management. Um, I am particularly interested with my clients in um, in self-regard. So how one um, feels about themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Like self-confidence, emotional self-awareness. So how aware are you of your own emotional experience internally and externally? Um, interpersonal relationships. So how successful are you at forming interpersonal relationships and um, what can we do to improve that that area and then also stress tolerance so um, and not to say that any of the other areas aren't incredibly important these are just the the few that I 
that I tend to focus on. I also, um, especially during this, the pandemic, um, empathy seems to be taking um, center stage as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and, and most people, most people are leaning into the, their empathetic side, um, but some, some clients are, some individuals, um, clients or otherwise are really needing some support around how to be more empathetic. I talk about empathy a lot because I feel like empathy does go a long way in, in relationships and connection. How can you actually grow empathy? Mm-hmm. So empathy is recognizing, understanding, and appreciating how other people feel. Um, empathy is different than sympathy. Sympathy is I feel bad for you. Empathy is um, I'm, I feel with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can absolutely teach it and train it and build it. It just takes practice. Um, it's how can you, um, you don't have to have experienced what the person is experiencing, but to look at the person and to get the person to really connect. Sometimes empathy is as simple as making eye contact and saying, um, I feel you, Mm -hmm. or I actually have no idea what that must be like. And I can only imagine it must really hurt. Yeah. What can I do? What do you need? So you can absolutely train and teach and grow empathy. Sympathy, I'm even trying now when someone loses someone to not say, I'm sorry for your loss. I actually think we have to get away from that language. I think it really causes a separation um, I'm all about empathy and compassion. Because I feel it, like I find myself saying that a lot. Well, it's a, it, culturally, that's what we do. It's like the automatic, it's where we go. Right. Um, I've been doing a lot of, and there's been a lot of loss, right? You know, I'm, I'm sending healing prayers, mm-hmm. remembering your loved one with, you know, positive memories. It's just a habit, but there's a, um, it's almost like a hierarchy. It's like, I don't know, there. it's not meant that way, but when you say, oh, you poor thing, or, oh, I'm sorry. It's like, somehow I'm over here and you're over there. There's a disconnect. Well, is there anything that you would like to add that, that we didn't touch on? The the book is, you know, I talked about the three parts of the book um, that walks the reader through the process. I really wanted this to be, um, to have the reader be able to get a a coaching like experience by reading the book, but the book is also um, talks a lot about my own journey. And the reason that that's important is because I share very vulnerably about my own experience, not because I want my experience to be heard. I mean, that's obviously, you know, we all want to be heard, but really more because um, people, I found that as I got into this work, um, especially my high-performing perfectionists were like, how do I be more vulnerable? I know I need to be more vulnerable. Tell me how to do it. (laughs) Part of this book is actually modeling what vulnerability looks like. So the book is also three parts in terms of the way it's it's lined, it's outlined. So it's like my story, which is woven throughout how emotional intelligence plays into each of the parts of the process and then client vignettes because everything is... Um, kind of ethereal until you connect it to an individual and how does this actually apply to a real person and how can I see myself in that person? Right. That's, that's so true. And I feel like 
if you if you go back to my very first episode, it was, you know, vulnerability is my superpower mm. because I wouldn't have been do I wouldn't have started this podcast if, you know, all of this bad stuff didn't happen, right? Like I wouldn't, and and so I felt like being vulnerable, and I found that being vulnerable to other people it gave them permission to become vulnerable and talk about something that they felt that um, was difficult for them to talk about and which started a, a lot of people's healing. And I think that was, that was kind of my goal. And, and, and I feel like being vulnerable is a very powerful, you know, a powerful way to be. Um, so I thank you. It, it really is. And I just think about Brene Brown's work and, you know, vulnerability, being vulnerable is, is, is also really not letting the shame fester, right? Like mm -hmm. if, when you breathe, when you speak the shame, it becomes less potent. Right. Um, and so that's also part of it, but yeah, it's beautiful. Thanks for what you're doing. Thank you for what you're doing. I cannot wait. I, I encourage everyone to check it out. Um, again, thank you so much for providing my listeners, my viewers with such valuable information. You got it. Absolutely. Well, that was Emily Golden, certified career coach and author of The New Golden Rule, The Professional Perfectionist Guide. For more information on Emily, including where to purchase her book, please visit atstpodcast.com. That's letter A, tstpodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to my monthly magazine, Authentic Insider, for more in-depth inspirational stories and everything mental health. And don't forget, you can also find this podcast in video format on YouTube and IGTV, and you can find my YouTube channel and my IGTV information on my website at tstpodcast.com. Thank you so much for being a part of the conversation. I'm Loralee Binstock and you've been listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. Take care.